0: Welcome to Awaken Podcasts. I hope you enjoy the teaching. All right, friends. Uh, I mentioned last week that we had a privilege uh, of hearing from somebody from IJM. Uh, International Justice Mission is an organization that we have been kind of praying through and praying with as a leadership team and as a church. Uh, Over this last year, we've been asking, God, where might you be leading and where might you be guiding Um, and and showing us some opportunities where we we might get involved and partner? And IJM has been one of those things that just continues to keep, uh, keeps coming back. Uh, And so, um, you'll be hearing more about uh, Awaken and IGM and what we're going to be doing in partnership. Uh, we're going to share a little bit about that tonight at the annual meeting. Uh, but for this morning, um, IGM has, uh, I think, 12 different people around the cities at 12 different churches teaching and preaching, uh, sharing a little bit about what they do. So if you would please welcome with me Mr. Jim Martin from IGM. Thank you, Micah.
1: Uh, it really is a privilege for me to get to be here. We do have uh, a bunch of our staff in the Twin Cities this, this weekend. Uh, but my insider friends uh, told me that uh, getting to come to Awaken was a big deal for me. So I'm a little nervous, if you'll bear with me. Uh, this is exciting for me. I'm glad to be here. Uh, and because I'm so excited, I thought I'd begin by telling you something I don't normally tell people when I, uh, when I come and preach. Micah didn't tell you this because I didn't tell him. But the, the fact is that uh, I used to play for the New England Patriots. And I'm sorry if that's a problem for some of you. Um, But I wanted to tell you how that happened because it has some bearing on where I want to take us this morning. I grew up in Massachusetts, not far from Boston, about 10 miles from what was then called Schaefer Stadium, which is where the Patriots still play today. Uh, And I loved all kinds of sports as a kid, played all kinds of sports. But back then, we didn't introduce kids to contact sports until much later. So uh, I got all the way up through, you know, played all kinds of things, but uh, in junior high school, I was finally introduced to my first contact sport. The gym teacher came in uh, and was like, today, boys, because, you know, it was an all-boys gym class, a little bit like Lord of the Flies, actually. Uh, Today, boys, we're going to learn a new sport, a new game. It's called lacrosse. I'd never heard of it before. And so he hands out like sticks and balls to everybody. You know, lacrosse, like you throw the ball with the stick and you catch it and all that kind of stuff. So he's like, go out in the field, master this new thing. And so we go out in the field, we're running around playing catch with the sticks and balls. Super fun for me because I'm like, it's this whole new thing, a whole new set of tools to work with. Loved it. Uh, learned how to pick the ball up off the ground, cradle it as I ran down the field, all that kind of stuff. Super fun. Jim teacher comes back, uh, another, well, he was there the whole time, but in a week or two, Uh, He introduces a new set of equipment. He gives everybody everybody a pair of gloves and a helmet because we're going to play a scrimmage. And I'm all excited about the scrimmage, and I put the gloves on, and they're just really cool. They feel awesome on my hands, and I'm holding the stick. And uh, poor, naive little me, I put my helmet on, and I'm like, I wonder what this is for. Because I had no idea about contact sports, right? So uh, gym teacher gets everybody ready, we got on the field, and uh, I choose, I remember this vividly, the right-hand-forward position because I wanted to be an attack in an attack position. I wanted to be where the action was. So the whistle blows, the scrimmage starts, and not long into the game, I'm, I'm running down the field, my friend Brian hits me with a pass, like right in my stride, I catch it, I'm cradling the ball, and I'm like laser focused on that one little nylon square at the back of the net, which is where the ball's gonna end up momentarily, like this is what's going through my head. Then, out of the corner of my eye, I see this boy, whose name is Tom Cronin, Funny how you always remember the first and last name of these people in your life. A Couple things you should know about Tom. Tom is playing for the other team. Uh, Tom is also the only kid in my junior high who's been shaving for the last three years. <laughs> I had not yet attained the full glory of my physical stature as you see it before you now. I was actually quite a skinny kid in junior high school. Uh, so I, I'm sitting, you know, as I'm running down the field, I'm thinking, I wonder why Tom's coming over here so quickly. I've got the ball. I'm not going to give it to him. Uh, So you can see what's about to happen, right? I I, Later in high school, would learn uh, that two objects cannot occupy the same space at the same time, and that when they attempt to do so, something uh, very technical called a collision happens. Uh, Collisions have physical properties to them. You probably know all this. The main one for our purposes here this morning is that the more massive body always wins. Uh, Tom was by probably two times the more massive body in this collision, and so it wasn't that I ended up sort of laid out upon Mother Earth, as I was somehow embedded in her crust. Like, I got trucked. So I'm lying there on the ground, and a couple things are happening simultaneously. The first is I'm waiting for my left lung to reinflate, because it seems to have stopped working. Uh, and then I'm thinking in the back of my head, I can't wait for the gym teacher to come over and to punish Tom for this outburst of violence. Like, this is ridiculous in the middle of gym class, for crying out loud. So the gym teacher does come over, and they scrape me off the ground and stand up, and it turns out I'm actually fine, like no, nothing broken, all limbs still attached, and all that's really good. And, uh, and he, the gym teacher does indeed turn t- toward Tom, but instead of reprimanding Tom, He actually congratulates him on one of the best hits he's ever seen on a junior high school field. So this was the day I decided to investigate my junior high school's music program. (laughs) My junior high had a fantastic music program, actually. Uh, It was desperately in need of low brass players, and so I began to learn how to play the tuba. This is all a true story. Uh, so I'm learning to play the tuba, actually really, really enjoying that and finding an affinity for it. And my, I graduate from junior high and go into high school. High school has even, an even better music program, uh, all kinds of different things, marching band, symphonic band, all these different things that I'm totally loving. And this is at a time when the New England Patriots as a football team are so bad and my high school music program is so good that we are actually the pep band for the New England Patriots. And so on any given Sunday, you could see me there at halftime playing for the Patriots it does come around if you wait for it. Yep. So the point of this whole thing is that I sat through a lot of football games, uh, a lot of football games, high school football games, professional football games. And it just started to happen after a little while sitting on the sidelines where I wouldn't just begin to wonder what would it be like? What would it have been like for me if I had actually overcome my fear and been able to get out there on the field, get into the middle of the struggle, and be with a team that was trying to do something that mattered to them. Because sitting on the sidelines was fun and I enjoyed playing my instrument, but I wondered, I began to wonder if I wasn't somehow made for something more. This was all happening at the same time, these these couple of years of high school where I was actually slowly getting to know the person of Jesus in a very deep and different way. I had come from a family that was, uh, a family of origin that was quite um, problematic and uh, had a good friend in high school, of course in the band, Who's, uh, who was a believer in Jesus, and his whole family was just a, a, like a place of refuge for me. They would invite me in, they would feed me food, and they would love on me, and this was transformational for me. And I was like, boy, if, if this is what Jesus turns people into, then that's what I want. And so I made a profession of faith at the end of my high school career, and I started going to church as, uh, as part of that. And this interesting thing was happening. I would show up at church on Sunday morning, and everybody would be really glad to see me. Oh, Jim, come in, come in. And they'd sort of usher me in as this little Baptist church, and they'd sit me down in the pew, and we'd have the service. And then I'd walk out, and they'd say, oh, Jim, tonight you should come back. We have another service on Sunday night. And I was like, oh, great. So I would come back, and they would usher me in and sit me down in the pew, and we'd have the service. And then as I was leaving, because it was a Baptist church, they have a service on Wednesday night, too. And they were like, Jim, you should come back on Wednesday night. So I'd come back, and they'd usher me in. and I'd sit in the pew. And some wonderful things were happening. I was was able to find a lot of people who were able to help me understand what I should no longer be doing, right? Because there was sin and behavior in my life that that Jesus wanted to deal with, and people were very helpful in pointing that out. But what was interesting to me was it was very hard for me to find people who could tell me what I should now be doing. Does that distinction make sense? Because it seemed to me that sitting in the pew, we were actually preparing ourselves for something that there must be out there in the world some sort of epic adventure, epic mission that Jesus was calling us to, and it seemed like somehow a little bit like we were sitting on the sidelines. And this became more pronounced to me as I started reading the scriptures for myself because when Jesus came to earth, he came very clearly stating his purpose. When he, he said he'd been given all authority in heaven and on earth to proclaim and to build this, this kingdom of God on earth, to establish once and for, for eternity this kingdom of God. And when he described the nature and the mission of this kingdom, he used epic language. Listen to what Jesus says when he walks into the synagogue in Nazareth. Just at the beginning of his ministry, we have this recorded in Luke four, verses 18 and 19, but Jesus walks into the synagogue and he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. And he unrolls it to the portion we now know is Isaiah 61 and he reads these words uh, about himself. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release for the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Bring good news to the poor. Proclaim release for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, to let the oppressed go free. This is a huge, world-transforming mission that Jesus is proclaiming. And it struck me that you can't do any of these things by simply and only sitting in a church pew, as important as it is for us to be doing that here this morning. Then there's this conversation that Jesus has with the apostle Peter in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus turns to Peter, looks at him, and says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. What does this mean? Does it mean that Jesus is building a church that is so fortress-like and strong that anyone inside it is protected from evil? I think there's some truth about the church being that for us, but this is not what Jesus is talking about here, right? Because if you think about it, a gate is not an offensive weapon, right? It's not, it's not the picture that Christians are running through the world and the minions of hell are carrying gates trying to bash them over the head with them, right? That's the wrong image entirely. It's the other way around. It's that the defensive weapon of the gate of hell is something that cannot resist the inexorable advance of the church, This is Jesus' picture of the church. It's a robust picture of the church inexorably advancing, even and perhaps especially, into the places of deepest darkness in our world. For Jesus, this is simply a logical consequence of what it means to be the church. It means that we will show up and shine light in the places of darkness and that the oppressed will be set free. This is just what follows from Jesus' death and resurrection in the world. It is a sequitur. But what does this look like? Because I think we can take these things that Jesus intended for us to understand very concretely and we can turn them into abstractions, right? We can turn them into things that that are different. So if the gates of hell cannot withstand the inexorable advance of the church, what would that actually look like? And in fact, what would these gates of hell maybe look like in today's world? Well, as Micah said, I work with International Justice Mission. We're an almost 20-year-old organization that is made up of professionals, of lawyers, investigators, and, and social workers, and a whole bunch of other people that are all Christians and all working as an expression of their local church. There's about 700 of us worldwide working in about 20 different communities in the developing world. And our whole role is to intervene in cases of violence being perpetrated against the world's poor. So from our vantage point in these 20 communities around the developing world, we have seen with shocking clarity what these gates of hell actually look like. And I want to give you just a couple of simple pictures of that this morning. The first is, uh, happens here in the city of Cebu. Cebu is a beautiful city in the central Philippines of about a million people. But when IJM arrived there in 2006, it was also a place of unspeakable violence being perpetrated, particularly against young girls, girls like Chirito. Trito was one of the very first clients that iGEM met back in 2006. And like so many kids in the developing world, her family was in deep uh, economic desperation and struggle. And so she, in an effort to help, quit elementary school early, uh, or quit elementary school uh, altogether, and she started working to try to support the family. She was babysitting, she was doing people's laundry, whatever she could do, and eventually she landed a job as a live-in nanny and maid. And at first it all seemed to be going well, until her employer simply refused to pay her. And when she tried to leave, the employer wouldn't let her go. And so all of a sudden she finds herself trapped in this domestic situation where she's being abused merely because she's vulnerable and she has no one she can call. She meets another woman about this time who, is, uh, who says she can help her, that she could get her a good job in a, in a club in Metro Cebu where she could make enough money to support herself and just not worry about the situation anymore. And being so desperate, she just jumped at the chance. But of course, this woman didn't have Trito's best interest at heart. This woman was actually a trafficker. So she gets hold of Trito and she delivers her to this bar in, Metro, in the Metro Philippines, in Metro Cebu, Uh, where she is horrified to learn that she's going to be required to serve more than drinks to the customers at the bar. So her situation moves from bad to incredibly worse when she discovers that she's going to be sold again and again night after night to customers in the bar. And this becomes her life with no escape. UNICEF tells us that 800,000 to a million new women and children are trafficked into this kind of commercial sexual exploitation every year. And the question for us this morning is, what does the church inaugurated by Jesus have to say about a hell on earth like this? Or what about Rahman? Rahman is actually a third generation slave. His father was a slave. His father before him was a slave. And it all happened because of a because of a small debt that they, that they incurred and had to pay off. And so the grandfather is enslaved in this rice mill, and then the father. And then in fourth grade, as soon as Ramana's is big enough to work in the rice mill, he's forced to go. And for 18 hours a day, what he does with his life is to dry, boil dry, uh, rake, and then bag and carry rice all day in the hot sun in India. This can be hard to envision, so I want to show show you a short video clip that was part of the investigation we did into this powerhouse rice mill. This is what it looks like to work in the hot sun for 18 hours a day, raking out rice, boiling rice, putting it in bags, and carrying it from place to place. Rahman was lured into this kind of slavery by this small loan that his family owed. And he's told that if he tries to leave the rice, right, if he works at the rice mill, he can work off the debt and then he'd be allowed to leave, but he's actually never allowed to leave. In fact, the rice mill owner has been paying him pennies and charging him exorbitant interest, so every year he's actually more deeply in debt. And if Rahman or any of his fellow slaves try to leave, the owner openly uses threats and physical abuse to keep them there. This, according to Indian law, is not slave-like treatment, it's not poor working conditions, it's not low wages, it is actual slavery according to multiple statutes on the books in India now. These statutes actually date back as far as the 1860s. This is slavery, this is what modern slavery looks like. And in Rahman's case, it's all happening because of a man named Mr. Kandasamy. Mr. Kandasamy is the owner of the powerhouse rice mill, and we know all this is true, the false promise of the loan, the violence and physical abuse that's meted out against Rahman and anyone who tries to escape. We know it's all true because Mr. Kondasami told us himself. We sent an investigator in to, to try to understand the situation at the powerhouse rice mill, and it was very easy for the investigator actually to get Mr. Kondasami talking about how he runs his rice mill. Here's some footage of this
0: poiran, adik karama ingin poiran, jadi macam karan yang hari this. aku pergi. Apa bro, apa dia kurangkan orang orang? Kurang itu yang mana gitu? Aduh lah. <laughs> aku <laughs> kerja karan
1: Mr. Kandasamy is actually happy to explain the inner workings of his business because Mr. Kandasamy perceives no threat from local law enforcement. He's been doing this for years, for generations in fact, with complete impunity. There's no one who will come forward to punish him. So because he perceives no threat, he explains exactly how it works. He laughs as he says, the debt keeps accumulating. There's no way they can repay it. Do you see? This is how I've been running my business for 25 years. Now, this kind of slavery has been against the law in India since long before IJM arrived. But it's just that the enforcement of these good laws just doesn't extend to poor people like Rahman. In fact, the World Bank did a study a few years ago where they they came to the conclusion that 4.5 billion people in our world, more than half the world's population, lives outside of the reach of the rule of law. So just think about that for a minute. For more than half of the people on planet Earth, there is no 911 phone call that you can make. There is no one that will come to rescue you. This is Rahman's situation. This is Chirito's situation not only just the horrible horrible vulnerability and violence of it all, but the realization that there is no one who can show up to enforce the laws that should be protecting you. So for Chirito and Ramon, I don't think they wake up every day primarily thinking about a need for clean water or for food or for medicine, or even necessarily for a church. I think they wake up every single day waiting for someone to make the abuse stop. The scale of the problem is actually enormous in today's world. The Global Slavery Index indicates that there are, somewhere between, there are somewhere around 35.8 million slaves in our world today. That's more than we have ever known of in recorded history. And an estimated 14 million of them live in India. 14 million in India alone. And the question for us this morning is what does the mission of Jesus have to do with this kind of abuse? What does the mission of Jesus have to do, the church of Jesus, have to do with a hell on earth like this, like Ramon and Chirito are experiencing? Well, it turns out, for those of us that take the word of God seriously, there can be no mistake, actually. Both testaments of our Bible make clear that God is passionate about this kind of injustice and that he wants it to stop. Irish Old Testament scholar Christopher J.H. Wright says several wonderful things. One of them is this that the Old Testament alone speaks to the issue of injustice with more frequency than any other issue except idolatry. For example, we can probably, some of us, quote Micah 6.8 from memory, right? He has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Think about that for just a second. God has been so kind to reduce everything he requires of us down to a short list of three things. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. But as I'm sure you're aware, this is just the tip of the iceberg. David, the great prophet, priest, king, and Old Testament poet of the Bible was constantly looking for ways to express what he loved so much about this God that he was in relationship with and why it was that this God was unique in the world from any other idol, any other would-be God. And so he's constantly saying these beautiful poetic things about God. One of them I love is in Psalm 35. Psalm 35 10, David says this, all my bones will say, right, this is the poet saying, I will cry out from the depth of my soul all my bones will say, who is like you, O Lord? Why? What is this distinguishing thing about God? David says, you deliver the weak from those too strong for them, the weak and needy from those who despoil them. Right? This, is, this is an identifier of the character of God, that he is a deliverer of the weak. The great prophet Isaiah says this at the beginning of his work of prophecy in the Old Testament, he says to the people of God, learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Again, for those of us who take the scriptures seriously, there can be no mistaking that God is passionate about this form of injustice in the world and he's actually calling his people to engage in this issue. The prophet's picture of the people of God is remarkably robust Jesus' picture of the church, the people of God, is that of a vibrant, courageous body that is light, even and especially in great darkness. It's a church that brings good news to the poor, that proclaims release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, that lets the oppressed go free. It's a church that the gates of hell simply cannot prevail against. We're so convinced of this, we're so convinced that the church is... God's answer to this problem at the world that we've, in the world, we've written a bunch of books about it. One of them is this book called The Just Church that is simply a, a, a desi- uh, written with a desire to help the church wake up to this calling in the world. The first half of the book is all about the connection, the intimate connection between discipleship and justice, that we as disciples of a God who is passionate about justice, would become justice doers in the world because of our discipleship. And then the second half is just a a treatise on a whole bunch of churches and how they have found traction locally and internationally in this important issue in our world today. That book is available online and a a bunch of other places. I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. So if we're sitting here this morning, the point for us, I think, is... um, if we're sitting here this morning desiring our light to shine more brightly, then perhaps all we need to do is take a step closer to the darkness. This is the way my colleagues at IGM around the world see their own expression of justice in the world and they're doing this as an expression, they're engaging in the darkness as an expression of the local church in their communities. For them, it is simply a sequitur that following Jesus means they will engage in issues of injustice around the world. And this is why I can tell you that Chirito is no longer trapped in a commercial sex establishment in Cebu. Here's how that happened. She is, in fact, now on the verge of graduating from university with a degree in social work, and she's looking forward expectantly to helping others the way she's been helped. She was one of the very early rescues as IJM was arriving in the Philippines, and uh, things were just getting going, so she's placed in aftercare after this incredible trauma that she's experienced of being trafficked into this commercial sex establishment. But the aftercare facilities in the early years in the Philippines were not, um, were not as nearly as good as they are today, and so the challenge for Torito was that she desired just to, to leave before her healing was complete. So James aftercare director, Ms. May, goes and finds her and says, oh, if you will come back, if you will come back and lean into the healing process, then you have a, a life of beauty before you. And so Trito actually does come back and she does lean in, and then she starts to say things like, everything changed at this point. In fact, she says that's when her life started to change completely. She later said, I have learned that God rescued me. In the past, I felt that everyone was bad and I felt hopeless, but God brought good people into my life to show me that he loves me. She's now part of an innovative mentorship program at at IJM Philippines where she's able actually to encourage young survivors of trafficking the way that she was actually encouraged in her healing. This is all part of huge strides that have taken place in the Philippines. We started this work in 2006 and 2007 in the Cebu area in a Tri-City region uh, in Cebu under the auspices of the Gates Foundation grant, and our, our statement to the Gates Foundation was, if you will fund this work for four years, our assertion is that we can, we can reduce the trafficking of minors in the, in the greater Cebu area by 20 percent in just four years. So, the Gates Foundation funds this, Chirito is rescued, Uh, many other girls are rescued, uh, actually a modest amount was about 85 girls were rescued over those four years, uh, or 125, pardon me. About 80 people were arrested, 80 criminals were arrested, and some of those uh, first arrests were going through the court system and starting to come to trial. That's where we were at at the end of four years. But when we went back and did the assessment of the level of victimization of minors, a third-party group of criminologists actually confirmed that it wasn't a 20% reduction in the number of minors available for trafficking. It was an astonishing 79% reduction. So So there are literally thousands of girls like Chirito who will never have to experience that kind of abuse because the criminal justice system is now functioning at a much higher rate. I'm also pleased to tell you that Rahman and his family are no longer suffering in the the powerhouse rice mill. IJM's team in Chennai, India, was able to document the illicit abuse that was going on in the rice mill where Oman was enslaved. The team then presented the evidence to local officials who were compelled under law to act because the law was being broken. And so in an IJM-assisted operation, Rahman and 34 other women, children, and men were rescued. And they were granted official release certificates by the Indian government. This document, this release certificate, is like a, like a personal emancipation proclamation that Decrees that the debt is forgiven and that the person is set free. So, Ramon and his family actually now, I'm happy to report, are thriving. This is a picture of the day that they got their goat. My favorite thing about this picture is that little boy's eyes, right? He's got some mischief in his eyes. And in his case, that is a glorious thing, right? He's been given his childhood back. Rahman is actually working a construction job. His kids are in school. He's enrolled in IJM's community leadership training program. And today, he's actually leading 70 other families in his village to petition the Indian government to provide running water and electricity to their village. But what of Mr. Kandasamy, right? Because the challenge is, you can free Rahman and those those 24 other people from Mr. Kandasamy's rice mill. But actually, if you leave Mr. Kandasamy there, he's just going to go out and victimize more people. So there was an arrest made, and my colleagues in, in Chennai in India actually worked very, very hard over the course of two separate trials to bring Mr. Kandasamy to justice. It took several years, but eventually Mr. Kandasamy was convicted in a landmark trial. And one of the statutes that was used to convict him dates all the way back to the 1860s. So Mr. Kandasamy was sentenced to five years of hard labor as, uh, for the crime of habitually dealing in slaves. That's what he went to jail for. Rahman's rescue and hundreds of others like them have led us actually to our knees as an organization. Because on the one hand, the problem seems huge 14 million people enslaved just in India. Sometimes it can feel overwhelming. But I'm here this morning to say actually, the tide is turning. Just a month ago, we had another rescue pardon me, just two months ago, but another rescue in India turned out actually to be the single largest rescue we'd ever experienced in iGEM's history. Five hundred and sixty-four children, women, and men on the same day brought out of slavery from two different brick kilns right across the street from each other and into freedom. They've also been granted relief certificates, and they're embarking on this new journey. They've been enrolled in iGEM's two-year aftercare program. So here's what I'm here to say this morning is that the call is urgent, that the task is massive, and the darkness is deep. And by God's glory, there is a church in the world that is waking up to the challenge. I'm so glad to be here at Awaken and so glad to be here with my colleagues in the Twin Cities. Uh, By the end of this weekend, we will have had conversations at 12 different churches. By the end of the weekend, we will have spoken to 30,000 people about this issue. This is evidence that the church is waking up to the issue of injustice in the world. So if I may, I wanna give you just a couple simple next steps that you might consider taking here this morning. The first is resources. Books like The Just Church, IJM has been putting resources out for the church for the last 20 years. You can go on our website, IJM.org, and check those out. Uh, We'll have some available at other places throughout this weekend that I'll tell you about in a minute. But continue, please continue the journey. I know that the folks at Awaken will be leading down this road, but for you and your small group, for you as individuals, is there something you could read that would help you steep in God's passion for justice going forward in this year? Lots of resources at IJM and other resources available for you. This weekend, there are continued opportunities for you. This very night, tonight at Grace Church, you could come to the You could come to the meeting this afternoon here, and then you could go right over to Grace Church in Eden Prairie for the Art Music Justice Tour concert. It's a concert with Sarah Groves, whom you probably know very well, um, and with other artists like uh, Brandon Heath and Jenny and Tyler. Uh, And it simply is a special night of songs, stories, and prayer in the fight to end slavery. There'll be a bunch of resources and material and a bunch of people there who are like-minded. So come worship and pray, and let's join together in this fight to end slavery. And then the final thing I wanna ask you to consider doing is to become a freedom partner. Uh, iGEM will continue delivering these services to people in the developing world free of charge because other generous people will be paying for them. So I wanna invite you to do that, to spend a few dollars a month to pay for the rescue that the poor cannot afford. You can find us online and and partner with us on that way if you're interested. But the important thing to, to remember is that this is actually an invitation. This is an invitation to us from the Jesus who inaugurated the church to be light in darkness. This is not Jesus sending us out to places in the world that are God-forsaken. This is Jesus inviting us in to the places where he is already at work in the world, saying, come find me among the poor, among the oppressed. That's the invitation for us. As I think about um, my life these days, my son, my youngest son, is now in high school. And uh, wouldn't you know it making me a proud dad, he has joined the marching band. <laughs> He's a snare drummer, which is a big thing if you know the marching band world. Um, and uh, so I find myself again at a whole bunch of football games every fall, and wouldn't you know, the same sort of twinge is there for me as I sit in the, in the stands. I wonder, what might it have been like? I mean, I know what the marching band thing was like, but what, what might it have been like if I'd actually overcome my fear and gotten out on the field? But I realized this this last year especially that there's a a more important question that needs to be dealt with. Because as my kids get older, I have two daughters in college, and I think about uh, down the road, I I hope that someday I will actually sit before a tribunal of grandchildren who will look up at me and ask me all kinds of questions about what the world was like when, when I was young. And I think among them will be questions like, Grandpa, Grandpa, where were you? when there was an epidemic of violence being perpetrated against the world's poor? Where were you when there were 35.8 million people in slavery in the world? Where were you when young girls were being trafficked into commercial sex establishments? What I hope I can say is that I was not on the sidelines, that I was actually in the middle of the fight, and that I can tell the story of a church that awoke to this kind of violence and changed the world. Would you pray with me and then we'll transition into a, a period of silence. Jesus, we are uh, grateful to you. Grateful for, uh, for your work to save us, to redeem us, to transform us. Grateful that you have given us beautiful communities like Awaken. And grateful that you are attentive to the things that we need in the world. And God, uh, just deeply grateful also that you have invited us into this work that matters so deeply to you, that you have invited us to be a church, to be a people that shines light even in dark places. So we pray this morning, God, we ask that we might um, earnestly and humbly just lay ourselves before you this morning and ask, what would you have us do? What next step might we be able to take? What what might we read? What discussion might we enter? What what might we do to be your church that is light, even and especially in very dark places? And as we do that, as we courageously take faithful steps, Jesus, may you be glorified by your church. In your name we pray, amen. I
0: invite you to a time of silence to consider Um, what you've heard this morning and what God might be leading you to or us to as a community. So just for a few moments here. God, that you would call your church into the places where you already are. God, that we would be people of resurrection because you're the God of resurrection. God, for girls who have been stolen, for people who have been enslaved, God, may the word of hope, the word of justice, a word of freedom come through the hands and the feet of your church. God, could we be so bold to ask that you would use us, that you would take this small little community in this corner of your kingdom and that you'd use us and our resources and our prayer And God, that you would turn the tide so that people would know that darkness doesn't win, but their resurrection is for everybody. So use us, God, we pray. Challenge us, whatever next steps we might take. Holy Spirit, would you be clear? Pray in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen, Amen. Grace and peace to you, my friends. We love you. online at www.awakencommunity.com, or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Community or on Twitter at Community. See you okay. next time.